This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, The Three Pillars of Mysticism, recorded March 24th, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. At the Center, as I just mentioned earlier when I was giving you an introduction to what the Center is about, uh, I said that we believe that the mystics of all these traditions are teaching the same truth. They're actually testifying to the same truth. And this is a truth about reality, something about the ultimate nature of reality. And uh, sometimes mystics themselves have realized this in various traditions, uh, especially uh, the mystics, uh, for instance, of Islam and in, uh, in India and so forth, where there have been a lot of uh, mix of religions. Uh, Abin Arabi, who is a great Sufi mystic, said, uh, whoever has seen what I have seen will say what I have said. And, and very definitely writes about uh, particularly the uh, Jewish and Christian mystics, that these are all legitimate forms of religion. And if, if the truth is understood, they're all pointing to the same thing. Uh, sometimes mystics haven't, by the way, so don't be discouraged by that. If you read through, for instance, some of the Christian mystics, they'd never met any other mystics. They were stuck over there in the corner of the European continent, and um, they never met any Sufis, they never met any uh, Jewish mystics, and they have a, a quite a um, uh, religio-centric uh, view in, in a certain sense. But this just comes from a normal sort of uh, ignorance, being ignorant of other traditions. Uh, in our own time, perhaps one of the first philosophers, uh, writers to notice this was Aldous Huxley. He wrote a book called The Perennial Philosophy. And uh, sometimes this uh, stream of mysticism that runs through all these traditions has been called the perennial philosophy, or perhaps better, the perennial wisdom, because it's not really so much a philosophy, although mystics can be philosophers. But the idea is that uh, it's a wisdom that keeps uh, popping up over and over again. Wherever you look, it keeps coming back. And so there's this idea, there's this stream that runs through all these traditions. It's uh, also uh, important to distinguish between the outward form of a religious tradition, not only the rites and rituals and so forth, but also the dogmas and doctrines uh, from the inner uh, core truth. And the technical terms for those are the exoteric form, the outward form, and the esoteric or inner form. This is not a hard and fast division, by the way. We can th more of it, we should think of it as a polarity. Uh, as we're going to see in a moment, really the supreme esoteric truth can't be uh, put into any sort of form. So even mystics are dealing in form. But uh, the, the question here is, does the form reflect back to a more transcendent truth? Or do people just take the form itself to be the ultimate absolute truth? And that's really sort of the difference between esotericism and exotericism. Uh, esotericism recognizes that there's something beyond, and exotericism tends to uh, take whatever the doctrine, the form, the rite, or the ritual as being an absolute. So those are just some uh, differences here uh, that sort of characterize mysticism. But really, what is this? stream that runs through all these religions. What is mysticism? And how can you identify a mystic? And how can you distinguish a mystic from other sorts of spiritual and religious authorities? And it's important to clarify this because particularly in our time, there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of confusion 
some of it innocent and some of it uh, intentional. Uh, a lot of it comes from materialists, uh, who for the last 200 years, ever since materialism became the dominant uh, paradigm or worldview of Western culture, at least of the educated classes, uh, materialists have been fond of lumping mystics in with psychics and occultists and astrologers and everybody they consider uh, that indulges in superstition. So it's a, a propaganda uh, technique almost. So uh, you'll often find reading through uh, materialist uh, philosophers and thinkers. They dismiss mystics along with astrologers and psyches and all that, uh, psychics. Then uh, there's also a, uh, 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 another confusion because some um, authorities, uh, spiritual authorities, claim mystical insights to validate all sorts of things, uh, to validate uh, worldviews, for instance, their own uh, doctrines and dogmas, which may not be part of any particular church, but things that they've made up or, or invented or, or are putting forward as the way things are. Uh, they may claim uh, mystical insight as the basis of prophecies about the end of the world and the doomsday and whatever. Uh, they may claim mystical insight as uh, for a personal authority, and in which case there are uh, sometimes for very nefarious reasons, uh, literally to, to build people uh, out of uh, money and, and sex and other sorts of services and whatnot. So uh, often these people uh, do this in the name of mysticism. So it's important to clarify really what is genuine, authentic uh, mysticism. It's socially important because in our day and age, when it's become obvious that materialism is an obsolete worldview, an obsolete paradigm, there's a great uh, openness and great debate, public debate, about uh, reality, about what the world really is, and so forth. And if uh, we are going to bring mysticism into that debate, we have to know uh, what we're talking about. And uh, personally, it can be very important if you, in fact, are looking for a mystical teacher teaching. So it's a good idea to have some a background, uh, some grounding in what are authentic teachings so that you can distinguish them from inauthentic teachings. So, so how do we identify uh, mystics? Well, we can identify them by this common truth that they all testify to. Now, this is a little bit circular here. Uh, for instance, if you go into our library, you will see that there are uh, several shelves of books divided by the various traditions, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so forth. We have on those shelves not just any works from those traditions, but what we consider to be the mystics. If you read through those books, you will find that most of them, a, a tremendously high percentage, in one form or another, express the same teachings. So then you start to say, well, these, these are the people who are classically considered mystics, so then you start to say, ah, well, this is what they have in common. And then you take those common teachings as the definition. And so uh, then somebody else comes along and says, I'm a mystic. You can uh, look at what they teach and compare it to this, uh, this common pool of testimony that the great classic mystics have given us over centuries and over thousands of years. And there's a tremendous advantage to having these traditions because things that are valuable, teachings that are valuable, tend to uh, get maintained from generation to generation, while spurious material tends to get sifted out. That's one of the advantages of having a tradition. Uh, so uh, you can uh, look at this, and to use a modern uh, technical philosophical term, 
you say there's a tremendous intersubjective agreement among these mystics from different times, different places, different cultures, who didn't just read each other. And uh, this, at least in my own experience and on my spiritual path, this was very persuasive for me. Uh, philosophers from different times and places and cultures have great disagreements, but you read these mystics and here the same truth is being uh, testified to, the same thing is coming up again and again. And it, at least for me, it made me uh, pay uh, a, a strong attention. I said, well, they, there must be something behind this. So the, these common testimonies, these common teachings, I've tried to boil down for the center here, for our practices, into five fundamentals, which some of you are familiar with. Uh, and trying to sort of get down to the bare bones and to try to present them in generic terms, not using terms like Buddha nature or something that is specific to one particular tradition, but trying to communicate them in more generic sorts of terms. But even these five fundamentals are rather complex, even though they only take up a few pages in a pamphlet. Uh, it would be hard for somebody who had, had no exposure to mysticism to sit down and really know what was going on here. It really requires somebody to sort of go along and uh, give a commentary and explain it. So they're more like reminders of essential points you'll find. So this morning, I would like to try to boil it down even further. I'm going to try to present it all in terms of three easy-to-remember fundamental points or teachings. You might call them the three pillars upon which all <coughs> mystical teachings rest. This is very useful, by the way, I think, because if you, have, if you can remember three major sorts of points, this helps you, like if you're reading mystics or, do you know what I mean, or, or talking to teachers and so forth, you can judge in your own mind, well, where do they stand in relation to these three fundamental uh, principles? The trouble is, however, uh, we immediately run into a great difficulty because all the mystics claim that this ultimate truth they're talking about cannot be put into words. For example, in Chinese, Tao has a, is a, what do you call a word with two meanings? Hominin. Hominin, I think, yes. Uh, the, the, anyway, the word has two meanings. On the one hand, it means the way, and the other hand, it means uh, to speak. So the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching are in Chinese. The Tao which can be Taoed is not the true Tao. The way that can be spoken of, that can be put into words, is not the true way. Uh, Shankara, who is a great Hindu mystic, writes, Brahman, which is the Hindu name for the ultimate reality, Brahman is beyond cause and effect. It is the reality beyond all thought. It is eternally the same, peerless, outside the range of any mental conception. So it can't be grasped by thought, and therefore it cannot be really put into words. Nargajuna, who is a great uh, Buddhist philosopher, writes, The ultimate truth, which is indeterminate, is the unutterable Dharma. There the sphere of the speakable ceases. The activities of the mind come to an end. So it's the idea of this dharma, which is a Buddhist term for uh, pointing to this, is that it's beyond, it transcends uh, the activities of your mind, the thought activities, the discursive processes of your mind. Dionysius the Aropagit, or Aropagiti, I think as I, uh, Houston Smith uh, pronounced it at this conference we went to quite differently. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, Dionysius uh, was one of the founders of Christian mysticism. And he writes, 
That one which is beyond all thought is inconceivable by all thought. It cannot be grasped by a concept, by concepts. You see, right away we're, we're actually getting this teaching of the, all the mystics are saying the same thing here. Uh, the word mysticism itself derives from an original Greek term, mustes, I think it's pronounced, which means literally closed mouth. It's etymologically related to the word mute. A mute can't speak, don't speak, closed mouth. So uh, we can say that one of the things about all mystics, all mystics testify to this. Now, I, I'm not taking that as the first pillar here because that's too general. Uh, there are a lot of things that's hard to speak about, if not uh, impossible to speak, speak about in your own experience. Sometimes your feelings, you have certain kinds of sublime feelings if you've uh, listened to great music and you say, I just really can't put it into words. Or maybe you've had some experience in nature or whatever, you know, or experiences of love. There are lots of experiences that, that we really can't put into words. Uh, the mystics mean something a little bit more profound and a little deeper than that, that actually in some sense the words and the thoughts are a veil, but it's something to notice about all mystics. Because anybody who does say, this is, the, the, the book says A, B, C, that is the absolute truth, is not a mystic. So that's, uh, if, the, if the understanding ends with the words, that is not mysticism. Mysticism that transcends the words. And all mystical teachings are really, as the Buddhists say, use an analogy, they're all fingers pointing to a moon. They are not the moon itself, and you, it's a great uh, danger and, uh, and a great fault to mistake the finger that's pointing for the moon to be the moon itself. And this is the criticism mystics often have of dogmatists, that they've, it's not that the doctrines and the dogmas are wrong, it's they've mistaken them for the absolute, and they don't realize that they are pointing beyond themselves to something that transcends themselves. So all mystics do teach, even though they say this ultimate truth cannot be put into words, they do teach, and they try to use words as fingers pointing to the moon. The Tao Te Ching, which begins saying the Tao which can be doubted is not the true Tao, uh, goes on for 81 verses to talk about that which cannot be talked about. And all mystics always find themselves in this position. But we do have a body of teachings, and uh, we can sift through these teachings, and we can sort of see what sorts of uh, same fingers there are in these teachings. So if we do this, we find the first one we can condense into a uh, phrase, a sentence, that ignorance is the root of suffering. This is important for uh, just to begin with because mystics, as I said earlier, aren't really philosophers professionally. Sometimes they use philosophy to try to communicate the, what they're teaching, but they're not interested in uh, what's philosophically right and wrong in that sense. They're interested in the problem of human suffering. That's the heart uh, basic interest here. And by the way, it's an, it's an interest that they share with everybody else in all human endeavors. Everything people do is because they want to put an end to suffering and they want to attain happiness. And mystics have the same concern that everybody else does. So uh, whether you think that the way to put an end to suffering and attain happiness is to become a millionaire or to become a, a president or something like that, that's a difference in the means, 
uh, and perhaps a difference in understanding what is the real cause of suffering, but they have the same, uh, the same goal as everybody else, how to put an end to suffering and to attain happiness. So they say this uh, odd little thing here, though, that ignorance is the root of suffering, the true cause of suffering. Shankara says, the mind is filled with ignorance, and this causes the bondage of birth and death. Uh, the Buddhists say, if one looks upon the world with eyes dimmed in ignorance, he will see it filled with error. But if he looks upon it with clear wisdom, he will see it as the world of enlightenment itself. Some ignorance here, some problem with our perception of things. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus' disciples asked him, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus said, it will not come by expectation. They will not say, see here, see there. But the kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. Again, he doesn't use the word ignorance in that passage per se, but it's exactly what the Buddha said, right? This very world is the kingdom of the Father, is the world of enlightenment. If we saw it correctly, but there's, uh, we're ignorant of this reality that's right here in front of our nose. Rumi, uh, who is a Sufi poet, puts this a little bit more poetically. He says, A basket full of bread sits on your head, but you beg for crusts from door to door. <laughs> Up to your knees in a stream of water, you are heedless of yourself and seek a drink from this person and that. In other words, somehow we have all we need. We're carrying a huge basket of bread, and we don't know it. We're ignorant of it. We go around begging from door to door. We're up to our knees in water, and yet we're thirsty, and we're asking people for a drink. It's very similar here, by the way, to a little analogy used in Buddhism, that uh, enlightenment is like a gem that a poor person has sewn in their garment, but they don't know it. A very precious gem. So they go around in poverty, in rags, begging and so forth, and, but they are not really poor, they're really rich. They just don't know it. They're ignorant of that. So ignorance is the uh, true cause of suffering here. Well, how, how can this be? We can think of some mundane examples. I thought of one uh, in Roman times, at the height of the Roman Empire, the wealthy Romans ate off copper plates. It's considered a great luxury. Now, <coughs> copper poisons you. And so they were poisoning themselves, but they didn't realize it. So here is how ignorance was a, a situation, a mundane situation, where ignorance causes suffering. Anybody else can think of an example? We do that sort of thing with our putting pesticides and chemicals on our land and our crops, and it goes to the water supply and kills the fish in the ocean. Yes, in the beginning we were really ignorant of this. We didn't realize this. Now we don't really have the excuse of ignorance. There's something else. We have another problem, greed, but not ignorance. <laughs> but no, this is true. In the beginning, DDT, nobody knew that DDT uh, you know, was damaging to wildlife and that it was a great miracle uh, uh, pesticide. It, it uh, boosted crop production and so forth. It was, you know, the people who invented DDT and started using weren't evil people. They were trying to attain happiness and put an end to suffering. They were trying to create more food in the world. So this, these are some mundane examples. So it's not all that usual, unusual an idea that ignorance can be the cause of suffering. But what mystics say is that all are suffering. 
all our suffering is rooted in some sort of fundamental ignorance. And in order to understand this, we have to have at least a little analysis of uh, suffering from a mystic's point of view. And I'm not going to go through this in, in too great detail. I've talked about this before many times. There are tapes in there if you're interested in checking out. Uh, we could spend the whole morning here just talking about this. But let's see if we can go through it uh, quickly and get some idea of why mystics trace all our suffering back to some sort of fundamental ignorance. The first thing is, the first reason or immediate cause of our suffering, not the ultimate root cause, but the immediate cause is we suffer because of our attachments. We get attached to things, things are ephemeral, they vanish away, they're stolen away, they're taken away, and so we suffer. We don't suffer when we lose things we're not attached to. And an, uh, an example I like to use of this oh, would be something like, um, let's say you were uh, shopping and you left your uh, purse in your uh, shopping cart and you uh, went to reach for the milk and you turned around and it was gone. Someone stole it. That would cause most of you a considerable amount of suffering. You have to, uh, first of all, you might have lost some money, but even if you didn't do, lose that, you'd lost your driver's license, your credit cards. You have to go through all that headache of, uh, you know, filling out the forms, calling up the banks, and so forth. If uh, you read about in the newspaper that a Jane Doe's purse was stolen out of her shopping cart, that doesn't cause you very much suffering. You might have a little moment of compassionate sympathy there. Oh, and you might have a little personal selfish suffering because you might think, gee, the crime rate's really going up around here, and that might cause a little fear. But just notice the difference here. It's not the fact that a purse is stolen that causes you suffering. It's the fact that it's your purse that's stolen. You're attached to that purse. So the, the immediate, most immediate cause of suffering is attachment. And this is why uh, uh, one of the things you'll find in all mystical traditions, they talk about the necessity for practicing non-attachment. It's just a logical, uh, simple um, observation here. But where does attachment then come from? What do we get attached to? Well, we get attached to things we desire or want or like. Or the flip side of that is we have an aversion to things we don't like and don't want. So it's really a flip side of desire. For instance, uh, most people have an aversion to sickness. They have a desire to be healthy. So they have an aversion to sickness, right? So actually an aversion to sickness is really the flip side of a desire to be healthy. So uh, we get attached to things that we desire. Uh, a, another nice example of this is uh, sometimes a, people give you a gift on your birthday or a wedding or something, and some people give you a gift that you really appreciate and like, and you might become quite attached to it. It might carry sentimental value over the years. You build the attachment. My mother gave me this gift. Ten years later, my mother's dead, so it's my dead mother gave me this gift and so forth. It might be... A, uh, I don't know, a, a little uh, champagne glass or something, beautiful little crystal one. If it breaks, that causes you quite a bit of suffering. Then your Aunt Tilly may give you an ugly green terrine that you have no desire for. You stick it up in the closet, and it's taking up space, and one day it breaks. And not only don't you have any suffering, you're kind of relieved. <laughs> Clean it out, throw it out, right? So attachment is based on desire. It's formed out of desire. This is all pretty obvious. Uh, nothing really mystical about this yet. 
But then, where does desire come from? Desire comes from, and aversion, comes from this sense of being a limited, bounded self. Or let me put it this way, to be a little bit more precise. It's our identification with desire and aversion as arising from a limited, bounded self. And I'm going to use the blackboard here to try and illustrate this. I'll draw this circle on the backboard, a bounded circle, limited, finite. And then outside, there are all these other circles. And the outside circles represent things in our environment. People, dogs, cats, houses, cars, mountains, trees, whatever, right? And we sense these desires arising in here. And let's make a desire a plus and a, an aversion. We'll give it a negative sign here. We sense them arising in here. We believe that this is what we are, a limited, bounded self. And the desires that arise, we feel as a desire for something we lack, that's something that's outside of this uh, limited, bounded self. We think that uh, uh, what will make us happy is something outside, a career, a job, a house, a lover, whatever. This desire is this reaching out beyond this boundary, trying to incorporate things, bring them into our sphere of ownership, influence, control, whatever. And then our fear arises from the fact that we realize that by looking at these other circles out here, that, you know, all of them eventually disappear. New ones come to replace them. But everything is ephemeral. Every bounded, limited entity is ephemeral. And we know that this bounded, limited circle that we believe we are, we're convinced, absolutely, it's not just a question of philosophy, feel we are, is someday going to disappear like the rest of them. So our aversions are to those things that we feel threaten this. We want to hang on to this as much as possible. Notice that this represents, especially if you look at this circle of the, of the self, this represents a primary distinction that cuts through all our experience. A distinction between self, which is everything inside this circle, and world, which is everything outside. Or we could say I and other. There's the I, everything's on the inside of this boundary, and the other, everything that's on the outside of this boundary. Notice that this, uh, this dichotomy, this duality, stamps all of our experience, characterizes all of our experience. All our experience is seen in this light. And so it's always a relationship between I and other. And the relationship is desire or aversion or all sorts of combinations and, and uh, 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 complexities that arises from this interplay of desire and aversion. I mean, in human experience, it can get very complicated. We can actually have conflicting desires. We can desire something but not desire at the same time. 
We can, we can want to be healthy, but we don't like to get shots. But we know that we have to get shots to be healthy, so, you know. But it all comes down to this fundamental dichotomy, this fundamental sense of uh, wanting uh, something that we feel we don't already have, because you don't desire things you already have, and uh, trying to keep away things that we don't want. Now, now suppose that this boundary that separates self from world is not real. Suppose you are not this self, this bounded self. Then this whole experience is somehow false, misperceived, imaginary, deluded. These are all terms you'll find mystics use. Our whole experience of this, all this, is based on some sort of ignorance, a misperception, a delusion, a maya. Well, then the suffering that this generates is also groundless, if this is true. If you are not this self, if you are not these desires and you are not these aversions, and when this self uh, vanishes, uh, it's not you that's vanishing. And uh, you are not separated from anything else. If this is true, then this whole experience that's arisen here is, uh, of suffering is uh, based on something that's not real. Well, in fact, this is what all mystics say. Here's Abina Rabi, a great Sufi mystic. Know that you are an imagination as is all that you regard as other than yourself, an imagination. Here's Catherine of Siena, a great Christian mystic. In self-knowledge thou wilt humble thyself, seeing that in thyself thou dost not even exist. The Buddhists uh, use terms like emptiness and shunyata, all things are empty, shunyata, but it has the same quality of space. Another uh, great image that's used in Buddhism, but also other traditions, is like sky. It's like uh, the sky, the space of the sky, and clouds pass through and they pass through the sky, but they don't really affect the sky. They come and they go. Here's what uh, Machug Ongjo says. She was a Tibetan nun uh, of the 12th century, and she's describing her enlightenment. She says, the distinguishing factor of all phenomena is emptiness. Spontaneous liberation is the great bliss itself. It is the dharmakaya, beginningless, beyond name and words. This is the bliss of knowing myself as not separate. Now, dharmakaya is a term that roughly we can translate as Buddha mind, because even the Buddhists have to use some positive terms at some point. Buddha mind, Buddha nature, universal mind, dharmakaya. Let's go through this again, using this blackboard as a, as a crude analogy. She says, the distinguishing factor of all phenomena is emptiness. Now, notice I draw the circle on the, on the blackboard, and we're, we're thinking of the blackboard now as, as like space, like emptiness. What is inside the circle? Emptiness. It doesn't have any... <laughs> true solidity. It's made up of, from a mystic's point of view, consciousness, uh, Buddha nature, shunyata. There is really nothing in there to get a hold of. As Abhin Arambi says, this is all imaginary. These distinctions are imaginary. 
we can get some idea of this, of saying, well, if, uh, if I look at Julie there and I say, where do I end and Julie begins? I mean, would it be like if we measured with a measuring tape halfway between us? It can't be, it can't be just at the surface of our skin because uh, in, in a relative sense, Julie's in my mind and I'm in uh, Julie's mind. So uh, if we were just ended at the skin, there would be no connection or communication or anything between us. So these, uh, we make this distinction, and it's not that mystics can't make these distinctions, but where is really the line? Where is really that boundary? Isn't it imaginary? Then she says, spontaneous liberation is the great bliss itself. It's the ultimate happiness. It is the Dharmakaya, the Buddha mind, beginningless, beyond name and words. Isn't this what all the other mystics have said here so far? This is the bliss of knowing myself as not separate. Not this self separate from these others, but the whole blackboard which is not separate from any of the forms that appear on it, is it? I mean, can we take the blackboard away and leave the forms there? Here's what uh, Meister Eckhart says. Meister Eckhart's a Christian mystic. The divine being is equal to nothing, and in, in it there is neither image nor form. Now, he's referring to the blackboard here. The blackboard itself has, is not an image, if we think of this as space. And it's not a form. And he writes about when we conceive of God in terms of a form, we're lacking something. In fact, that very image becomes an obstacle between us and God. And he says, the smallest little image that's in your soul hides all of God. He also goes on to say, Some people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they here. It is not so. God and I, we are one. This is that thou art, isn't it? From Hindu mysticism. Brahman, that's what you are. Of course, he's only uh, verifying the testimony of the founder of his tradition, who was Jesus, who said the Father and I are one, right? It was dangerous to say it like this in those days, and he himself came under the uh, uh, suspicion of the Inquisition and was actually mm -hmm. prosecuted. Fortunately, he died a natural death before they could actually get their hands on him. That's why uh, other Christian mystics <coughs> particularly, you'll rarely have, hear them come out and say so directly, God and I, we are one. That's blasphemy. If you read through the Jewish uh, mystics, you'll rarely hear anybody say directly, God and I are one. But as I said, they'll say things like, there is nothing but God. Wang Po, who is a Chinese Buddhist, says, Only come to know the nature of your own mind, in which there is no self and no other, and you will in fact be a Buddha. Ananda Moyamai, who she was a great uh, Hindu mystic of this century, she says, So long as the sense of me and mine remains, there is bound to be sorrow and want in the life of the individual. So long as there's this sense of me, I, self, I, another, self and world. Right? Now look, see, I just wrote you, read you mystics from uh, five different traditions here. 
When I say that all these mystics teach the same thing, I don't mean just generally we're all the children of God. I mean very quite specifically. So then the question is, uh, if you are not uh, this little bounded finite self, who are you? Well, uh, the Hindu mystics say, uh, you might say this is really the, the fundamental slogan of all of Hindu mysticism, that thou art. It goes back to the Upanishads. That thou art. That means Brahman. Brahman is their name, as I said before, for the ultimate reality, this, uh, this reality that cannot be spoken of in words, that cannot be grasped by thought. And you, thou, art. So that's what you truly are if you weren't blinded by ignorance here. If you knew the truth, that's what you would know. Shankara says, The illumined seers know him, speaking of Brahman, as the utmost reality, infinite, absolute, without parts, the pure consciousness. In him they find that knower, knowledge, and known have become one. Now, let's look at this blackboard and see if we can uh, use the blackboard itself as a very uh, crude analogy for this. But if, first of all, you know you're not others. And if you're not others, as Wang Po said, there are no others, there's no I, and, and you're not this self, what could you possibly be? The blackboard. The chalk. Well, supposing we... Uh, took all of these little circles out. They're all impermanent. They're all going to come out. The new ones are going to come in. What's left through all this? That sense that animates the being. Well, there is that a sense of, of that power. Something's doing all this uh, somewhat. Uh, it's happening, whether we can say something is doing it, but... No, but you said the blackboard. I mean, we're just using this to represent here. Supposing we, we look at this blackboard and we see the blackboard itself a finite thing, flat, and uh, not a very pretty one, actually. But supposing instead of a blackboard, you imagined just the space of consciousness itself. Just pure consciousness, pure awareness, as Shankara says. All these phenomena arise in this uh, space of consciousness and disappear in it, including, by the way, the phenomena that you believe to be yourself. You know, mystics don't say phenomena isn't arising, appearances aren't happening. They just think it's not you. Sensations are arising in this space of consciousness. Thoughts are arising. Feelings are arising. All this stuff is arising and fading away. But what is it that, uh, as Shankara says here, is um, uh, infinite, absolute, without parts, pure consciousness? If we think of this blackboard as being a kind of more like a space with no end, with no parts, the space itself doesn't have parts, but not a physical space because it has this quality of awareness, of consciousness, of knowingness. We get some idea now of what the mystics are talking about and what, from mystics' point of view, is God. 
The Buddhists don't like to use any positive term for this because terms themselves uh, uh, make us think of a thing, like the term God. And then we start thinking of a big daddy in the sky or something, you know. And so the Buddhists are very reluctant to use any sort of positive terms. They like to put everything in the negative sense. Whoever you look, all you see is God. These are common expressions. They'll also talk about the union of the soul with God. We'll get to that a little later, which is a softer way of, and a slightly different angle, but same, same thing. One of my uh, favorite uh, quotes on this comes from Abina Rabi, who is a great Sufi, as I said. And the, in the Sufi terminology, one of their words for, the, for God, for Allah, for this ultimate reality, is al-haq in the, uh, Arabic, which means the real. So Abina Rabi says, Whoever imagines that he sees the reality himself has no gnosis. He has gnosis who knows that it is his own essential self he sees. So this brings us to the second uh, pillar that all mystics teach, and that is that gnosis ends suffering. Gnosis ends ignorance, actually, and the suffering based on this ignorance, on this fundamental misperception of who we are and the reality of our situation. So we have ignorance as the root of suffering, and Gnosis ends that ignorance, and consequently the suffering as well. Now, what is Gnosis? Gnosis is a word that um, is actually a Greek word, it's the word that Abin Arabi just used. Of course, it was an Arabic word. It's been translated into this English word now that's in our English language that comes from the Greek. And it means a direct, unmediated knowledge of reality. A direct, unmediated apprehension is perhaps a better word. Perception. Not through thought. It's not intellectual knowledge. It's much closer to an experiential sort of knowledge, but it's not even experience in the sense that experiences come and go. They vanish away. We have a wonderful, beautiful experience, but it goes. But this is a, a, a way of knowing that is neither intellectual nor does it come and go the way experiences come and go. Uh, the actual root of the word gnosis, I'll, draw it, I'll write it out here, G-N-O, is the same root as in ignorance. See the GNO? Ignorance literally means not gnosis. Don't have gnosis. That's what ignorance literally means. They come from this Greek root. And this root is related in Sanskrit, uh, the Proto-European uh, Sanskrit language to a root that's spelled J-N-A, which those of you who know something about Hinduism and Hindu mystics is the root of Janana which is their word for this ultimate form of knowledge. And it's also related to prajna, for those of you who are Buddhists, who know something about Buddhist terminology. Prajna is this, the knowledge by which you can perceive this ultimate reality and dispel this ignorance. So this is very ancient etymological roots here. But it's still very mysterious. Uh, what, is, what, sort of, what sort of knowledge could it be that's not intellectual knowledge? It's not like knowledge of a theory. And it's not an experience. So mystics use other terms as synonyms, 
cinnamons. <laughs> <laughs> the spices also the sages. And, yeah, look at that. They use other terms as synonyms for this, which are a little bit closer to our own experience. Some of them are enlightenment, realization, recognition, waking up. So let me go through and give you some examples, some mundane examples and some teachings about this and see if we can get a, a, at least some uh, more of an idea of what's being talked about here. Enlightenment is kind of obvious. It's a quite uh, common idea in our, even in our culture, you know, that uh, I saw the light, the light came on, you know, it has this idea of a sudden seeing things, we see things in a new light and whatnot. Uh, light is also very uh, ancient and common metaphor that runs through the, uh, all uh, traditions uh, because when we talk about uh, this consciousness, this reality as being this emptiness, this space, this sky, we want to make sure that we don't associate that with a physical vacuum in which is just a, a sort of an absolute nothing, but it has this quality of awareness, knowingness, light. Uh, the, the Buddhists, uh, Tibetan Buddhists, for instance, particularly talk about the clear light of the natural radiance of mind and so forth. So uh, the, uh, in the uh, Kabbalist uh, Jewish tradition, they talk about the light of the intellect and the light of the personal intellect uh, being only a reflection of the light of, of the, the intellect, the God's intellect and so forth. So all the way through you, you find that the light is this common uh, metaphor here. And we could, this is a very, uh, as I said, even the most mundane level, you know, in a dark room you shine a light and so you see. But um, these other terms perhaps are a little bit more uh, precise in terms of giving us some idea of what this is about, this gnosis. Uh, realization is a term you'll find uh, in many traditions. Now, by the way, of course, these are all English terms, and so they're translations of terms in the other languages, but presumably the translators are translating fairly closely. Uh, in Buddhist Lankavatara Sutra, uh, it said, these teachings are intended for the consideration and guidance of the discriminating minds of all people, but they are not the truth itself, which can only be realized within one's own deepest consciousness. So, uh, what's a mundane example of realizing something here? The one I thought of was, uh, perhaps you remember from your school days, maybe uh, you were studying geometry, and your math teacher was trying to explain a theorem, a geometry proof on the blackboard, and explained it, and a couple of the other kids get it. You don't get it. Math teacher goes over it again, you still don't get it. Math teacher goes over it again, maybe you take it home and you're puzzling over it, and suddenly, ah, you get it. You realize what he was talking about. It has this quality of this suddenness, this sudden turning around, this sudden uh, seeing something that, in a certain sense, was there all the time. It's not that you've now been introduced to new information. In the beginning of the math class, you might have been introduced to new information, this theorem, but You've now been pondering and pondering. It's sitting right there in front of you, but suddenly you get it. It's a little bit like a joke, you know? Somebody can tell you a joke. You either get it or you don't sometimes. Uh, recognition. And this is a nice word because if we break it up, it, to recognize has the idea of something we actually already know, but don't know we know. And in all mystical traditions, they'll talk about, the, we, I mentioned this earlier, that uh, the Buddhists say we are like uh, people who have a 
a precious gem sewn into our garment. Uh, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, Rumi says, you're carrying around a basket on your head. We don't know it, but in, yet it's part of us. So in a certain sense, we do know it. So to recognize means to know again what you actually already know, but have sort of forgotten. This is Lady Tsoigo, a great uh, Tibetan uh, uh, teacher. If you recognize me, the, the Dakini queen of the lake of awareness, the one naked mind arisen from within, absolute awareness permeates the universe. So if you recognize me, she's saying, I am the one naked mind, only one mind here. I am the blackboard. Recognize me. And then absolute awareness permeates the universe. Well, if we, you know, have this little universe with all these circles on a blackboard, and we think of the absolute awareness as the blackboard itself, it does. It permeates everything. Whatever you draw on it, the blackboard is permeates as the background to it. Yes? So one question I have. What's the, according to these mystics, what's the nature of awareness as far as, I'm like, right now I have a sense of being aware. But when I'm in deep sleep, I don't have a sense of being aware. Well, this is an interesting uh, practice. You have to discover this through a practice. We don't think we are aware, but uh, is that really the case? It's something to investigate. Maybe it's just that there are no objects arising in consciousness. See, maybe you don't remember anything. That's why you don't think you're aware. But just in our normal life, you know, like, uh, I mean, do you remember what you were doing on May 6, uh, 1993? Do you have any memory of anything that happened on May 6, 1993? <laughs> no. Well, you were, you were aware then, weren't you? I mean, you would say you were. Suppose, yeah. Yeah. Well, same thing as sleep. <laughs> we don't actually ever lose awareness. It's a, it's a trick. I mean, a, a part of our ignorance. Uh, There's something, by the way, to investigate. Don't take my word for it. But I don't want to get off into practices of the night ways you could do that now. But there are ways in mystical traditions to investigate that. So, uh, what is this, uh, what do we, how do we use recognize in our, in our daily life? Well, another example, or a common mundane example that can illustrate this a little bit is, let's say you're walking down the street, and this uh, older guy comes down the street with his, you know, big heavy beard and so forth, and uh, he looks maybe a little strange to you, maybe even looks a little threatening, and maybe you're alone on the street, and uh, you start to get a little tense, a little nervous. Maybe it's late at night, and you get you're getting up closer and closer to him, and maybe you're getting a little bit more and more nervous. And uh, he, uh, the voice comes out and says, um, uh, "Vinny," and you look, and he says, "Vinny, Vinny, don't you remember me? It's Joey from the ninth grade." <laughs> oh, I recognize you, Joey. Oh, now look what happens. So this is a nice example because it shows how recognition dispels suffering. Here she's having this fear. She thinks there's a stranger, threatening-looking stranger coming down the street. And in that moment of recognition, it all dissolves, dissipates away, right? Now, again, nothing changed. It's not like Vinny took off his mask. He was wearing a Dracula mask or something. I mean, not Vinny. Uh, Joey took off his Dracula mask. Nothing's actually changed. It's just like that geometry problem, right? You're looking at the same thing. You're looking, but it's like a gestalt switch. Suddenly you see what you never saw before. So recognition's a very good uh, synonym for this gnosis. Uh, another one is um, awakening, to wake up. 
And this is uh, what Buddha means, by the way. The Buddha is the awakened one. Buddha mind is an awake mind. But we again find this analogy in all sorts of traditions. Here's uh, in Hinduism, Shankara says uh, about his own awakening. Until now I have been dreaming. In my dream, I wandered through the forest of illusion from birth to birth, beset by all kinds of troubles and miseries, subject to reincarnation, death and decay. Now, by your infinite compassion, O Master, you have awakened me from my dream. You have set me free forever. And again, in dreams, uh, we take our dreams to be real, unless we're dreaming lucidly, don't we? When we're dreaming them, they seem very real. And they can be very frightening sometimes, or they can be very troublesome. And what is the solution to the suffering that the dream is creating is not to solve a problem in the dream, is to wake up and see, oh, it was just a dream. So it's a, also another good analogy. One thing about waking up, uh, the analogy of waking up, uh, when we wake up, usually that whole dream world just vanishes completely. The, the appearances even vanish. But if you want to be more precise with the analogy, think of it as waking up in the middle of a dream. So nothing vanishes, but now you know that it's a dream. And the difference here is you were ignorant that it was a dream before, and now you know, gnosis, that it is a dream. So, uh, then, as I said earlier, this can also be described as a union. A lot of uh, bhakti mystics, devotional mystics, describe it this way, as a melting of the soul into God, becoming one with God. Uh, you'll find the same metaphors from tradition to tradi tradition about rivers running into the sea and so forth. And this is uh, really a description of what it feels like from the point of view of the seeker. There is actually no melting into God or anything because you weren't other than that to begin with. So, But it, it sure feels that way. So these are descriptions of particularly when you are going to run into some sort of a doctrinal dispute with the authorities that be. Uh, these are a little bit uh, more personal ways of saying it, and you don't have to you know, put yourself out on a dogmatic limb. And it also reflects a genuine experience here. So these are all terms, union, this melting into uh, whatnot, are all terms that uh, realization, recognition, uh, mean this gnosis, this fundamental term. So this brings us to uh, the question, how then can this be attained? This gnosis, this realization, this recognition that puts an end to uh, ignorance, which is the root of our suffering. And this brings us to the third and last pillar here of our uh, boiling down of all the teachings. And it's selflessness is the way to gnosis. The selflessness is both, according to mystics, the reality of our condition. That is the truth of the situation, the truth of the matter. We are not that little bounded self. It's only because we're ignorant that we think we are. The truth is we aren't it. And it is also the way to realize this truth. So selflessness does a double purpose here in mystical uh, teachings. If this is true, that there is no self, then to live in accordance with reality is to live selflessly. If you live selfishly, 
you are living uh, in accordance with uh, what's unreal, and it's no wonder you suffer. Whenever we, uh, when we don't know reality, and whenever we're acting on false information, we're always in danger of suffering. It's just like those uh, Romans eating off their copper plates. They don't know that their suffering is uh, what the cause of it is. If they knew the reality of the situation, the copper poisons you, they would stop. So as long as we're uh, uh, acting out of this uh, sense of the small, bounded self, and, and our actions are determined by these personal desires and aversions that we identify with, and as long as our whole strategy in life is to get from the outside external things and to build up and protect this boundary and to keep away the things that, uh, that are threatening it, we are bound to continue suffering. It's not based on anything real. So if we want to understand uh, the reality of our situation, we have to stop living this way and start living selflessly. And there are two forms of selflessness, major forms of selflessness, in, uh, described in all traditions. And one is selflessness in relation to God, or to the Absolute, or uh, to uh, Brahman, or whatever. And we, if if uh, you, you can think of it just in relation to the, the universe, how things unfold. And this is how Anandamaya, Anandamayamai, describes this. Abandon yourself to God in all matters without exception. May he do as he pleases with me, who am but a creature of his hands. This should be your attitude of mind. It is personal desire that is the very cause of suffering. Now notice she's using God here as not I, an object. Abandon yourself to God. Abandon yourself to this mystery, this infinite mystery. Why does she speak this way? Because from the point of view of the deluded, ignorant person, that's the way they feel. They, they have this sense, if they have any sense of the divine at all, they have a sense that it's other. It's not I. It's infinite. It's uh, um, peerless. It's uh, uh, unbounded, but they still feel bounded. So mystics often make use of that. Uh, the way to realize that that is who you are is to start abandoning yourself to it, letting go. And so to, to, if you have a concept of God or whatever, this can be very useful along a path. It's not an ultimate teaching. Though. The second way to practice selflessness is in relation to our neighbors, other people. And in particularly in all traditions, but particularly in Christianity and Buddhism, this is heavily stressed. You know, Jesus' two great commandments were love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's everything. That means if you, if you love your uh, uh, Cadillac, then there's, you're not loving God with all your heart, your all your soul, and with all your mind. That's that, what, she's, what Ananda Moyam I just said, personal desire, that personal desire. No, no. Let me just take one digression here. We don't mean that desire isn't going to arise like you don't get hungry. A biological desire arises. The Buddha got hungry. Ananda Moyamaya got hungry. Although maybe she didn't. She got fed. Uh, Jesus certainly got hungry uh, and whatnot. So it's the question of identifying it as personal, as mine, that is the real problem here. But uh, the, Jesus' second commandment is love thy neighbor as thyself. 
And so many of his teachings are about how to treat your neighbor. You know, if your neighbor slaps you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. If your neighbor steals from you your coat, give him your shirt as well. All these things are about uh, uh, practicing this um, this surrender, this uh, selflessness in relation to uh, your neighbor. And your neighbor is a wonderful teacher for this. In uh, Buddhism, they say that we are our other beings are our field of practice. And they have an analogy that the teachings are like seeds and other beings are a field. And if you give a farmer the teachings, the seeds, without a field, it doesn't do any good. But if you have a field without the seeds, it doesn't do any good. So the teachings are given to you and then you can practice these in the field of other people. This is your primary ground of practice. Here's what Teresa of Avila, a great Christian mystic, says about this loving your neighbor, this practicing selflessness in relation to your neighbor. And she's got a very strong one here. You must do violence to your own will so that your sister's will is done in everything, even though this may cause you to forgo your own rights and forget your own good in your concern for theirs. If the opportunity presents itself too, try to shoulder some trial in order to relieve your neighbor of it. This is a radical teaching. Notice there's a very, very different way than we usually approach the world under delusion, where we approach the world of what can I get from me? Now, uh, again, these are practices. This is not a teaching about how your neighbor is better than you or worthy, more worthy than you or that you're a bad person or anything like that. It's a teaching that's an antidote to how you normally behave. It's a teaching that says, why don't you... See what happens if you behave this way. Instead of, uh, instead of acting on a delusion and acting out of uh, something that's unreal, why don't you act out of uh, selflessness and see what happens? Why this uh, recommendation to live selflessly, to abandon yourself to God, to uh, take your concern off yourself and uh, substitute your neighbor's uh, welfare for your own? Well, Rumi says it. Indeed, selflessness is the goal of the path for it is nothing other than true selfhood. So there's a paradox here. By surrendering yourself is the way you find your true self and ultimate happiness. For as Meister Eckhart says, for truly, if anyone had denied himself and had wholly forsaken himself, nothing could be for him a cross or a sorrow or suffering. It would all be a delight to him, a happiness, a joy to his heart. It's a wild, radical teaching, isn't it? It's a scary teaching. And this is why, by the way, it's not enough to just uh, list these three uh, pillars and say, well, that's it. This is why all mystics insist that you practice this. You put in there, and then all the practices of mystical paths, the meditations, the precepts, the virtues, uh, all these things are designed, they're based on these principles, and they're designed to help you see them for yourself. And it's not that you can overnight make yourself into a selfless saint. And if you have an image of a selfless saint, you're in trouble already. They are experiments. They are things to try out a little by little, one step at a time. Do you know what I mean? 
It's not a question of uh, making a resolution like a New Year's resolution. Oh, I'm going to be selfless tomorrow. You try it, you go out there, you won't be able to do it, first of all. This is, we have this tremendous conditioning here. But if you try in little ways, instead of acting in a graspy, greedy, uh, clinging way, you start acting in a little ways, compassionate, giving, and so forth, you will find from your own experience that that is where true happiness lies. That in itself will start to make you more happy, more joyful, and you'll begin to see in your own experience what the mystics say. Whenever I grasp, whenever I act out of the sense of a, uh, a limited, finite, frightened self, that is suffering. And whenever I relax that, open that up, oh, I feel better. So to take this as guidance as to actual little practices, these are the basis for all these practices, all these disciplines that are developed on a spiritual path. And uh, they're all governed by these three pillars. Uh, ignorance is the root of suffering, gnosis ends suffering, and selflessness is the way to gnosis. Now, again, don't take my word for this. We have a library in there, as I said, of uh, 2,700 volumes, about, I don't know, maybe eight, 900 or mystics. Go read them. See if this isn't true. And then at least you know what uh, mystics do teach. What is essential to mystical teachings? And then if you meet a teacher or read another book or whatever, and they may have some very different thing. They may say, I'm a mystic, and, and uh, if you follow my path, you have success and fortune and fame. Well, <coughs> one thing is sure they're, they're not a mystic. Whether their path will give you success and fortune and fame, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe you don't want to follow this path. But they aren't a mystic. Don't be confused. So you check it out for yourself. Uh, then finally, I want to add my own testimony to this. This is true. In my experience. <laughs> my whole life, up until the age I was 40... Uh, I was living in, a, as Shankar said, a kind of a dream, a delusion. I thought the uh, a, a source of my suffering was uh, external uh, conditions. I thought that I could uh, uh, put an end to suffering through all sorts of things. When I was younger, I thought I could make a revolution, put an end to suffering. Uh, when I got older, I thought uh, a career in Hollywood and getting rich would put an end to suffering. I thought getting married would put an end to suffering. I thought my dog would put an end to suffering, all these things. And in my experience, I found none of them did. For a time, I'd feel better, you know, getting a little success, you get a little thrill and all that. It all wore off, though. Suffering returned. And then finally, I went on a spiritual path. I read these uh, mystics. I took them seriously. I tried to practice them in their <coughs> life. And I tried to practice this selflessness. And I practiced and practiced, and I failed and failed until finally I just... Uh, got to the end of my rope. And by the way, that's part of what this practice does. It operates on a level of, you might say, a subconscious level, we'd say in our culture, that you're not even uh, in control of. And finally, uh, one night, I woke up in the totally lost in the middle of a hotel room, and sure enough, this was true. I wasn't any of this, this form in this self. And that was 13 years ago. So all I can do is add my testimony to all these people. And by the way, you see, it's, I'm glad there are all these people around because you 
would have no reason to think, I mean, you must think I was insane if I said something like that without this, right? I mean, it's really radical. It is insane. But even though when I say this, take Shankar's advice. Shankar says, from the lips of your teacher, you have learned the truth of Brahman as it is revealed in the scriptures. Now you must realize the truth directly and immediately. Then only will your heart be free. So what I've tried to do here this morning is just sort of, as the Buddhists would say, turn this wheel of Dharma one more time, but it's always passed back to you. Every time it goes around, it's passed back to you. Only you yourself, by realizing this directly in your own experience, uh, can become free. So, now are there any questions or comments? Well, you've talked about this a lot, so this is certainly not adding anything new. It was just at that moment I felt like a distinction might have been useful as far as the image of selflessness versus maybe true selflessness or something, which is, in a sense, beyond images. You know what I mean? Um, and I was just going to give an example. I was telling him about my hockey game last night where I got attacked and mauled, and I wasn't really... Uh, I didn't, in, in that situation, I acted very spontaneously and defended myself and um, got out alive. <laughs> but, um, but uh, so in that sense, there was a certain, uh, there might be a, a useful distinction between a sense of spontaneous uh, action, which could be very well uh, pinned down as not being selfless, which spontaneous, you know, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like I was trying to, although I was trying to protect myself in that situation, it, was, it wasn't uh, very self-reflective, it was very uh, Ah, but you see, uh, actually true spontaneity is always selfless, true spontaneity. There's a big difference between conditioned reaction and spontaneous action. Spontaneous means unconditioned, free, it doesn't have a cause or a reason. That's what spontaneous means, you see what I mean? So, uh, Sometimes uh, a conditioned reaction can seem spontaneous. It's like out of your control. You just lash out at somebody who insults you. You know what I mean? But you can tell whether this is truly spontaneous or not by every... Does every time somebody insults you, you lash out at them? That's not true spontaneous action. That's conditioned because uh, f from the other side anyway, I know the button to push and you're like a robot. I push your button, I insult you, you lash out. I push your button again. Yeah, I can sit there and play with you all day long. That's not spontaneous. True spontaneous action is totally free action. That's the definition of it. So when there's real spontaneous action, that's a sign of selflessness mm -hmm. because it's unconditioned. It's not coming for uh, any particular desire to do something, to you know, get something or some aversion. It's just arising. The whole business of creating an image out of selflessness is very interesting, and it's a great danger that all the mystics warn against. You start on a spiritual path, you hear a teaching like that, oh, you're going to live, uh, be a selfless person. Maybe you pick an exemplar, one of the teachers uh, from one of the great traditions to imitate. You know, you're going to be like Jesus and so forth. And uh, you start succeeding halfway. Uh, one of the ways you start su succeeding is simply overriding your conditioning. Uh, and then occasionally you may have some true, genuine moments of freedom and spontaneity in there. But then what happens is you've created a new image of yourself as a saint. And then you can get very attached to that. And then the sign of that is when, uh, uh, both externally and internally, externally the sign that you become attached to that image is when somebody doesn't recognize that you're a saint, you get annoyed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
Uh, you can become quite obnoxious, you know, very saintly people can be very obnoxious in that. If they're not true saintly, but who have an image of that, you know. And you also get upset internally uh, <coughs> because you, here you are, you think you're a saintly person and some uh, desire arises or some greedy thing, you know, you see that in yourself. But uh, you shouldn't be upset. That's just telling you that you, know, you haven't really got it yet. You've got an image you're hanging on. You've substituted one image for another image here. So you can, you can take all those things as teachings, or you can get more and more defensive and build your image more solid, more solid, and then you just create a big spiritual uh, circle here. I mean, you have a circle, a defined, limited self, but now it's on a spiritual plane instead of on a, a worldly plane. Yeah? That's why it's sometimes much more refreshing to meet worldly people who are just sincere about, you know, eh, I know, I'm greedy, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you've been around spiritual people a lot, there's an honesty that's very refreshing about it. It's true. So, yeah, but these are things, again, they, once you tr actually try to do this, it gets quite complicated. And all sorts of things come up, and um, you have to wend your way through this maze, you know, and there are many, many blind alleys to go down. But that's the whole point. You have to find out for yourself. You have to find that for yourself. Nobody can walk that for you. And it's through the actual walking and the, the, the failing, the falling on your face, the going up the blind alley. This is how you yourself learn. Then it all becomes your experience. You know because you've done it. <clears throat> Earlier, when you started speaking, you were talking a lot about detachment or not being attached. And you say anything you cling to. And one thing I need to always remind myself when we're talking or thinking about that non-attachment is that it doesn't mean being totally isolated or, you know, a slippery thing that nothing sticks to or whatever that it, it can sound pretty arid. It can sound pretty um, dead. And I was thinking while you were talking about that, okay, you don't want that image to stick with me, to stay with me, but relating rather than attaching that you know I am one with everything here so to build relationship with as much or many people or many things but not in an attached way I'm glad you bring it up because this is again a word that unfortunately in English has a negative connotation right, of like being stoic, stoic and indifferent yeah. Right. Uh, so forth. And of course, this is a lot of people on the spiritual path go through this because this is the ego's dream. See, that this circle is going to become invulnerable to pain. That the, the solution to the end of suffering is to make this nothing bothers you. That would be a kind of an end of suffering, you know. So yeah. people can die in front of you and, you know, nothing will bother you. Yes, right. It just all washes off. Well, this is actually uh, extreme egotism. This is mm -hmm. the idea of the ego as being impregnable, so yes, completely in this fortress. This is exactly the opposite of the idea of this not being here at all. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So detachment um, really means, uh, has nothing to do with emotions, feelings, uh, and all that. It has to do with this, uh, something that you have to really learn to spot in yourself. This little bit of clinging, this added something into the actual situation that yeah. isn't there. If I'm relating to you, if I'm feeling powerful feelings, that's all happening. But it's the minute I want to hold on to one set of feelings, like I, now I feel really nice with you, you know? And we, we're getting along great, you know what I mean? And, da, da, da. and then I start to want to, I don't want ever that, that to change, you know? That starts to be a little attachment. It's going to change and I'm going to suffer. Or 
the flip side of that is we're not getting along so well. There's anger, there's this to that, you know what I mean? And I start to push that away. That's aversion, you know? It's, it's there. I'm trying to push reality away. But it all is this fluidity, and it's really the way people usually experience this in the beginning is, is suddenly things are, are flowing through this boundary all over the place, you know? Yes. You know, it's not... And there's... there's if you're angry... I don't say, well, you're angry, that's your problem. It's, I'm feeling it, so it's my anger. I mean, where's, you know, we can, we can ask that. Where's, whose anger is this here? You see what I mean? So this is really much more what it's about. I, I said this, I think, last week. If anybody wants to know uh, what mystics mean by detachment, go see the movie Zorba the Greek. And Zorba's not a, it's not a religious movie at all. And Zorba's not a religious character. He's got lots of faults. But the one that he's got down is detachment. And uh, you go see that movie, and it's all about detachment. It's all about uh, living passionately, but without any detachment. Never trying to cling to the past, if you know what I mean? Not letting a, a failed expectation ruin your day. Uh, living realistically, accepting. He says, like what she says, abandon yourself to God's hands. Zorba tries all sorts of things. If it doesn't work out his way, okay, fine. He's not sitting around clinging to something that isn't there. He's on to whatever is now happening, you know. So it has much more of that uh, character. And I think, as I said last week, one term you could use is letting go, constantly letting go of things, not, not holding on to them. But detachment is a word that uh, you're going to read in all those books in there. So I'm not willing to give up detachment. I'd rather educate people about what it means, truly from a mystic's mm -hmm. point of view, so that people aren't turned off when they go read this, because it's a word that, you know, that's just... Uh, so deeply embedded now in, in the tradition. But if you have any doubts about it, go see. Have you ever seen Zorba, the Greek? Oh, when it first came out. Wow. Go see it again. <laughs> oh, you know, every, every, about every year, once a year, once every two years, I show it here, a surprise on a Sunday. I might do that. <laughs> uh, but we, do, we don't just sit back and kick back. and we, we stop it, and then we talk about what happened here. And, you know, then let it run again. Any other final questions or comments? All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And uh, you're welcome to stay and have some tea. Check out the library until I see you again. Peace to you all.